Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hi, Book Dreamers. It's Eve and Julie, and we just want to say quickly that we are sorry for the quality of the recording of this week's episode. We've been playing around with different recording techniques, and we thought we would try recording using Zoom. And it turns out we thought wrong. It was not the best way to go. So we're sorry that this episode won't sound up to our usual standards. I um, also want to point out that we made this recording a couple of weeks ago, and that's why the dates will sound funny. Yes. And we also wanted to let you know that the next book that we're reading together and we'll discuss on a future episode is called The Summer Book. And it's written by Duva Janssen. <laughs> <laughs> pronounce it. And that's how what happened. Could you just do that again, Julie? Because it was so much fun to hear you say that. It's so fun to say it. This is, but it's spelled T O V E. And the last name is J-A-N-S-S-O-N. And that's what Wikipedia tells me is the correct pronunciation, Duva Janssen. Uh, <laughs> and let's see, what do we know about Duva Janssen? She was a Swedish-speaking Finnish author. Uh, she's also a novelist, painter, illustrator, and a comic strip author. And this book yeah. came highly, highly recommended by many people. So we're excited to read it. Yes, and share it with you. And now, episode 12. And welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and has ever wondered about them. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and its sequels, and the Top Secret Diary of Celie Valentine series. And I'm Eve Johallam, and I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue, which is coming out next week, May 12th. Yay! <laughs> and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen, which is actually a prequel to mm. The Truth According to Blue. Nice. But we can talk more about that later. Yeah. In each episode of this podcast, we explore a book-related musing, something we've wondered about for a long time, or maybe it's just very recently struck us. I could not be happier about this episode because your latest novel is coming out. And so we get to talk about the making of a book here on Book Dreams with our very own Evio Hallam. I love this book. I love talking about books and writing with you. And so this is like a freshly baked chocolate cake with chocolate frosting for me. So Eve, could you start by telling us a tiny bit about your novel, The Truth According to Blue? Why, yes, Julie, I can. <laughs> um, here's how I would sum it up. It's about a girl, Blue Broen. She's 13 years old, and she and her diabetic alert dog, Otis, have plans to spend the summer hunting for lost family treasure in the waters off Sag Harbor, New York. And they are just getting started when Blue gets saddled with Jules, who is the spoiled daughter of a vacationing movie star. and off we go. It's all so delicious. The elements are so great. But in some ways, this is a very different book than your first two middle grade novels. Escape Under the Forever Sky tells the story of a girl who was kidnapped in Ethiopia and rescued by lions. Based on a true story. Incredible, just incredible. But that's a discussion for another day. And Cast Off is the tale of two stowaways in 1663 on a ship headed to the East Indies. But this book is set today in New York. So why that change? So two things. I wanted to try something new. My first two novels had required 
a ton of research. The old adage, write what you know, I, I never really paid attention to that. I knew nothing about Ethiopia when I started that book. And I knew nothing about the 17th century when I started Cast Off, except that I knew that the 17th century and the 1600s were the same thing. And <laughs> that was my starting point. Mine too. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be fun and a challenge to write something that's not research-based, that's set in the here and now, that's something I know a lot about, and see where that takes us. And I wanted to try writing what I knew. And then the other impetus, well, there were, I guess there were three things that got me started. The second one was I wasn't done with Cast Off yet. Mm. So Castoff is about these two kids who meet on a Dutch East India Company ship that's going from Amsterdam to the East Indies in 1663. And in The Truth According to Blue, Blue is the descendant of Petra and Brahm. And the treasure she's hunting, she knows about because it's passed down. The stories about it have been passed down in her family for 350 years. And nobody believes that the treasure is real. You know, it's like a game of telephone except for Blue and her grandfather. And her grandfather has passed away and she is determined to find the treasure for him. I love that connection. I find it so fun as an author to think about that, that you would write about something from hundreds of years ago and then you would write about their descendants all these centuries later. You know, I don't know if this happens to you, but when I finished Cast Off, I kept thinking, about what happened next. And then the third thing that got me going on this book was my sister, Jen, Jennifer, had just adopted the dog of my dreams. She adopted this wonderful all black German shepherd whom she named Ben. Um, Jennifer, Jen is diabetic, but she wasn't envisioning Ben as a diabetic alert dog. But in any case, I wanted her dog. I coveted her <laughs> dog. <laughs> I love dogs. And the only thing I love more than dogs is my husband who is allergic to dogs. So I can't have a dog, but I do get to have my husband. <laughs> so here's one of the great things about being a fiction writer. We can have everything. Yes, that's very true. Very true. Yeah. I also wanted to talk more about your sister having diabetes for two reasons. One, it's fascinating in the book, the many ways that diabetes affects everything that Blue does. And you handle that, you handle it with such a light touch. It's so integrated into the book, but it never feels preachy. It just feels like this is very much a part of her life. So I am interested in how much you knew about your sister's experience before you wrote the book, what it was like writing about something more personal, because I think that your other two novels, as you've said, don't really involve your personal experience as much. So tell us a little bit about that. So I'm glad you asked about that. I mean, obviously my sister was on my mind because I was coveting her dog. And <laughs> I decided to make Blue have diabetes because there are very, very few characters with diabetes in children's literature. I mean, you know, you can count them on one hand and some of them are in books that came out a long time ago. And so the way you deal with diabetes today is very different from how you might have dealt with it 15 years ago. The technology has changed. And going into it, I knew a lot about it. My whole life, I've had a sister who has this disease. Plus, I am borderline type 2, until I found out that actually I knew very little, or I knew relatively little. I knew more than the average person on the street, but I really didn't get it. What I learned was it's an invisible disease. Nobody knows what it's like except for the people who have it. And if they're children, they're parents. I'll give you um, 
a perfect example, which is last Thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving before last, I was sitting next to my sister and we, you know, we sit, it's time to eat. Jennifer loves Thanksgiving dinner. We sit down to eat. I'm sitting next to Jennifer and I'm in the middle of writing this book and she's been helping me with it. So she kind of gives me a nudge and I look down and she's holding out her monitor, her continuous glucose monitor. And it shows that her blood sugar is well over 300, which is, it's very high. Yeah. I know that now. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So just for people who don't know, basically you have a normal range of blood sugar. And when you eat food, your blood sugar goes up and then your body releases insulin and it makes your blood sugar go down back into the normal range. And people who don't have diabetes never get above 300. That's really high. And so if your blood sugar is over 300, you can't eat until it goes back down again. You have to take insulin to get it back down and then you have to wait. You would never have known if you were sitting at the table, she looked completely normal. And I whispered to her, what is up with that? She goes, I have no idea. It's been like this for the last two days. I can't get it down. Mm. That's the other thing. You know, people think, oh, your blood sugar goes up, you take insulin, it comes back down. Mm, not always. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And so then Jennifer sat at the table, you know, sort of quietly not eating, nobody noticed. And, you know, that is what it is like to have diabetes. Yeah. I said earlier that you handle this with a light touch. I mean, it doesn't feel heavy in the book, but you get across very well that the consequences of not managing this are really serious. Thank you for saying that you think it's handled in a a matter of fact way. All the people I know with diabetes, and I interviewed a, a bunch in addition to my sister, they deal with it in a very matter of fact way. It's just normal. It's part of your everyday life, especially people who are diagnosed as small children. And the way I got that onto the page was by rewriting a lot. You know, mm-hmm. it, yeah. it, it was plenty didactic. And then I got rid of all of it. I thought, nobody wants to hear this. And then my editor said, no, 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 we, we actually need to see this. Yeah. And I said, yeah, but that's really hard. And she said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What I also love about it for a middle grade book is that it really affects your dependence on your parents. You know, they really are trying for the first time to take steps away. So it's that critical moment of how much independence to give and when. Yeah. I mean, your parents know every bite of food you put in your mouth. Your parents know what your endocrine system is doing all day long. Your parents come into your room in the middle of the night because you're blood sugar has gotten too high or too low. Parents of children with diabetes don't sleep through the night until their kids maybe are teenagers. Oh my God. I hadn't even thought about it from that perspective. Wow. Yeah. It's tough. It's really tough. So basically I started out writing a book that was very different from the books I'd written before, but it turned out not to be at all because I ended up doing a ton of research the way I always do a ton of research. I didn't write what I knew. Right. Right. We all come back to who we are. Right. 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 You said you fell in love with your sister's dog. Well, I fell in love with your fictional recreation of your sister's dog, Otis, who's Blue's medical alert dog. Can you tell us more about medical alert dogs? That seems like fascinating research. I would love to tell you more about medical (laughs) alert dogs because they are the coolest (laughs) things ever. I mean, you sent me an article and I I bet a lot of people have seen this. They're training medical alert dogs right now to sniff out the coronavirus. Amazing. Dogs are just magical. So they can smell cancer. They can smell when you're going to have a seizure so they can alert you before it happens. They can smell COVID-19, just crazy stuff. And so there are these 
fabulous dogs called diabetic alert dogs that will alert you, that will alert a person with diabetes when their blood sugar is getting too high and too low. And then some diabetic alert dogs can wake up in the middle of the night to alert you. So even when they're sleeping on some level, they're attuned to your blood sugar and they wake you up. And not only that, the dogs will often smell changes in blood sugar 20 minutes before a continuous glucose monitor will pick it up. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. They're rock stars. These dogs, they're incredible. Actually, I I left out the most important part. So they are these rock star magicians, but they're just normal dogs. Mm, So they're loving and playful and naughty, and they are beloved, beloved family pets. Then they also save your life every single day. Right. You know, there's a lot of love actually that comes through in the book because of Otis. Blue has a very loving relationship with her parents, but of course there are these tensions and there are all sorts of tensions, of course, with Jules and that evolves and all of that. But it's just lovely in a book to have it suffused with love and Otis allows that. Otis is the one thing everybody can agree on, right? Right. The whole family loves Otis. Jules loves Otis. And even when Jules and Blue don't like each other, they're both on the same page when it comes to Otis. Right. So you told me just yesterday that your writing has grown a lot because of your editors. How did your editors influence The Truth According to Blue? They influenced it a lot. They asked really good questions. And I think with this book, the main change was they pushed me and pushed me to go deeper into the emotions of this book. Yeah. So in your acknowledgments, you say something along the lines of, Mark, we both know what you did and and I'll never forget it. Would you explain that to our book dreams listeners? We're all dying to know. I will. I will. So exactly a year ago, last May, my editor delivered her line editing comments. And she told me I had a two-week turnaround. And they were extensive and it came Friday of Memorial Day weekend and I had a bunch of house guests that weekend. So I lost those three days. And my mother, the day after Memorial Day, was having major, major back surgery. My father was gonna be staying with us. She was gonna be in the hospital for five days and she was going to convalesce in my apartment for a week after that. And so I immediately, said to my editor, can I have another week? And she said, yeah, but it had, you know, we are down to the wire. It has to go to copy editing. You can't have more than that. Wow. So I sat down to do it. And the majority of these line edits were about going deeper. Mm. And that was not something that came easily to me. And so I'm sure that Lisa and Hannah had no idea when they sent this to me, but none of them was a quick fix. None mm. of them. Mm. I was working literally every waking moment when I wasn't going to the hospital, things like that. So Mark is one of my oldest, dearest friends from high school. And we often write in the same room to keep each other company. And after working on this for several days, I just, I had a complete panic and he said, come over. And so after that, I sat next to him on a couch and I said, I just talked through it. Okay, I need to figure out a way to describe this. This is what I'm thinking. You know, I just did it sort of out loud with him listening. And he basically held my hand while Mm. I was doing this revision. And at one point I was talking and he was napping and I didn't realize it. But but at many (laughs) points, 
at many points, he, you know, he just saved me. And we did this for about two or three days and until I stopped panicking. And then I was able to go home and finish the rest of the revisions on my own. Oh my God. Between Otis and Mark, I just filled with deep appreciation for the entire human and dog kind. (laughs) (laughs) And what was the cover design process like? Listeners probably don't know this, but contractually, almost no authors have control over their covers. And publishers are required to ask your opinion, but they're not required to take your opinion. And Little Brown has just been so, so delightful. They asked for my opinion, and then they took my suggestions, which I just loved. <laughs> you read that is so fabulous. That is just another heartwarming tale from you today. Do you remember what some of the suggestions were? Yeah, I'll tell you the most important one. If you look at the cover, you see two girls, Blue and Jules, on a dock, and Otis is next to them. And Otis is kind of bowing down. And there was always the idea to have two girls, something to do with water and Otis. The reason Otis is bowing down is he's alerting. When Otis bows down, that is the way that he tells Blue that her blood sugar is low. And to me, this just sums up the whole book. When you look at that cover, you think two girls and a dog, they're having fun, they're at the beach. But what's actually going on is two girls having fun at the beach and a diabetic alert dog telling one of the girls that her blood sugar is low and she needs to stop what she's doing and deal with it. So interesting. So initially Otis was not bowing? No, he was just frolicking with everybody else. Ah, that's happening. I love that. Okay, so here's the million-dollar question, Mm. or the zero-dollar question. Yes. Your book will be released on May 12th. What's it like to publish a book during a plague? Um, Bittersweet. It's bittersweet to publish a book during a plague. I mean, there's always something really joyful and big about having a, a book come out. It feels monumental. It's the result of years of work and so much heart that authors put into every book. And that doesn't change. You know, my book is coming out. This thing that didn't exist that I cooked up in my head and my heart is now out in the world. But I'm not sure that the world is going to know that it's there because all the bookstores are closed. And when they do open, maybe a couple of months from now, and different books might be on the tables and shelves. So that's, that is hard. That is hard. And and that is sad. I don't know if you've ever heard Anne Brasheras, who wrote Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, talk about her debut. The first Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants book came out on 9-11 and she woke up having that magical, my first book just got published feeling. And then 9-11 happened and she sort of assumed that that was it. Bigger things had happened and her book was not, you know, it wasn't going to go anywhere in the world. And Turns out she was wrong, and I'm hoping that. Yeah. I'm hoping I'm wrong too. <laughs> Let's make that happen. Everyone, please pre order Eve's book. It's really good. I love oh, this book. Thank you. You won't thank regret you. it. Yes. Really. Okay. I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Please subscribe if you haven't already, and please, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Yes. Oh, and be, please be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we will try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other reason at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. Many thanks to our associate producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, the incomparable Maya Polsky.
You can find Eve at eveyohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. Many of our local independent bookstores are open in the sense that you can call them or you can go online and order. And if your local independent bookstore isn't open, you can find books at bookshop.org. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, and listen to book dreams with Julie.